All right. Welcome back to another good episode of Dan on Top. I'm your host, Dan Lukowitz, and man, this is an episode I've been looking forward to for a long time. So the gentleman we have with us is an incredible individual who is uh, widely known in in our industry of commercial real estate, somebody I've had a really great pleasure of getting to know over the last, I don't know, probably year or so. So without further ado, we have Brad Thomas, the CEO of Wide Moat Research. Brad, how are you doing? Hey, Dan, I'm doing great. It's always great to be on your show here, so I'm really excited. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. For those of you who don't know Brad, you're really missing out. This is a guy who is incredibly well-connected. He is probably the content leader in NetLease, especially as it pertains to real estate investment trusts, uh, illustrious writer in in, uh, in many different publications. He has his own research company, and he's just up to all kinds of great things. So, w- Without you know getting into the details and the nitty-gritty of what we're going to talk about, I want to know a little bit about you, Brad. So tell our viewers. Viewers, who is Brad Thomas? Wow, that's uh, that's probably going to be my toughest question of all. I wasn't prepared for this one, Dan. But uh, at any rate, I've been in real estate now 30 years or more, actually. And uh, I'll, I'll say about two thirds of that. So we're over 20 years of that has been kind of in the ground, um, you know, building net lease and some shopping centers and some warehouses. But uh, I've been in the, the brick and mortar business now for uh, uh, for 30 years, but 20, 20 years was a developer. And now for the last 10 years, I've really focused more on research and researching publicly traded real estate investment trust or REITs, um, but uh, across all property sectors. So not just net lease, but also all of the, all the major property sectors that you think about, There's, you know, your traditional residential and office and uh, industrial, but also moving into some of the healthcare sectors, healthcare subsectors, uh, we even covered cannabis uh, reaps today. So there's just a lot of different pr- product for us to uh, research, and it makes my job extremely exciting. That's awesome. Yeah, and you do a great job at it. I know that I've had a great time interacting with you. We've spoken together on Clubhouse and some other places, and I know that uh, you've you've really you did something awesome. You, you spent some time with some of the people that work with me, and they're they're just blown away because you're a guy that they've been following for years, and it's it's really cool for for you to take that time and and interact with some of my staff, which I really appreciate. So let's jump right in. Talk to us about what's going on in the REIT world. Maybe the buildup, because I know you and I have talked about this. You know, ten years ago, there were a handful of REITs. Today, it seems like there's a new REIT every quarter. Uh, tell us a little bit about how that developed and and what the outlook is for real estate investment trust moving forward. Sure. Well, a little bit of REIT 101. And by the way, I do teach REITs now at NYU, which is, of course, a very prestigious real estate school. Um, I'm happy to start actually teaching in class. I I wrote a book last year, or actually we published it just a few months back, called uh, The Intelligent REIT Investor Guide. Um, So in that book, we walk walk all the readers through kind of how REITs began. So I really want to touch on that first, and that REITs started about uh, well over 50 years ago, so actually in 1960, in the Eisenhower administration. So over those decades, we've seen essentially an evolution of sorts of different uh, REITs and re- the real estate investment trust universe. And today it's really, uh, as I said, it's really exciting because it's expanding. It's so broad now, over $2 trillion of market capitalization that's spread across, oh, I don't know how many REITs now. We have uh, about 150 or so equity REITs wow. in, our, in, our, in, our, in our coverage spectrum. And so uh, it's been a really interesting time. And now, you know, we've, we've gone through multiple recessions, so we, we can see how REITs have responded. And now we can actually 
refer to a pandemic and see how REITs have performed uh, during a global pandemic. And how have the REITs performed during a global pandemic? Yeah, so it, again, going back to these different property sectors, but let's let's start broad. In a broad sense, REITs just crushed it. I mean, overall, uh, equity REITs, uh, not to be confused with mortgage REITs, but equity REITs generated returns of over 40%. That was actually the second best performing asset class, uh, second to energy, of course, was the number one uh, asset class that coming out of the pandemic, but real estate just crushed it. You know, yeah. obviously there were certain sectors that did better. And a lot of that, uh, you can look at some of those retail sectors have really bounced back, you know, strongly. Uh, there's still some sectors that are still beaten down. And obviously as value investors, we're looking very closely at some of those sectors like hotels, lodging, for example, which is still kind of clawing out of, out of the pandemic. Obviously that's uh, correlated to travel and business travel specifically and international travel. So uh, we think the hotel REITs could really be an interesting play for investors in 2022. Yeah, I would agree with you. I actually, we're going to be bringing a hotel to market, a $24 million property uh, in the next couple of weeks. And you know, we, we feel that the outlook for hotels and resorts is, is strong. They've obviously seen some difficult times in certain senses. But it, it's so interesting to me to, to hear that REITs have outperformed pretty much everything other than energy. Isn't that incredible? It is. It is. And, and you know, look, it's really, as, as you and I both know, I mean, growing up in real estate, it's, it was no surprise to me when we saw, you know, the sell off that occurred in the public markets. And there's a lot of fear and anxiety in March and, and April of 2020. And, um, you know, I would drive around my town and I think to myself, I drive by an old shopping center that I built and I look at it and I think, you know, it really it makes no sense that a shopping center REIT has fallen in price by 50 percent. But yet this shopping center that I'm looking at and I, that I built, it, the value of that has not dropped by 50%. So we felt like it was a very opportunistic time to be buying up and really loading up on a lot of those companies that were very distressed at the time. And again, there's still those opportunities out there. Um, and now what we're really looking hard at are the, the companies. Now we've got inflation, uh, which, which I think is you know going gonna to continue. But, but I believe I think we're going to get to a point where um, things are going to pull back a little bit. We obviously there's been a lot of inflation fear in the marketplace. So we're looking at the real estate that has pricing power. And those are the companies that are able to adjust their rent uh, with inflation. Now, the problem with that is the market has actually seen that as well. So a lot of those companies that uh, REITs that we would normally invest in like apartments and self storage are fairly expensive right now because the institutional money has really uh, pursued those REITs or those REIT sectors that have pricing power. So that's really been an interesting uh, part of kind of what, what we see now coming out of the pandemic. But again, I think for 22, we just put together our, our forecast for, uh, for investors, for REIT investors. We think it's going to be a really good year, probably not as good as we saw in 21 with the 40% number that I threw out. But again, most of these REITs have telegraphed or actually guided their growth plans for 2022. And what we're going to see is probably low double digit growth, which is incredible to see. And that means, of course, dividends will continue to grow and dividends are really what drives REITs. I mean, the law, the primary part of the law, the REIT law has to do with dividends. That's what makes this sector so appealing for investors, because these companies, these REITs must pay out at least 90 percent of their taxable income in the form of dividends. That's why you see these high yielding REITs that have you know yields of 4 percent, 5 percent or even 6 percent or higher. 
and, and that, that's been the attraction for investors, especially income oriented investors like the retirees. Sure. Now, do you see a continuance of capital flowing into the net lease space like we saw in 21 as, let's say, maybe multifamily cap rates compress and there's perhaps volatility in the equities market and fear in, in the general American consumer? Yeah, that's a great question. And, and what's interesting is you, we've seen a lot of M&A activity in 21. And I think we're going to see a continuation of that in 22. I mean, for example, we've seen Simon acquire Tallman. We've yeah. seen Realty Income merge with Verreet. We've seen Kimco merge with uh, Weingarten. Uh, we've seen uh, Vici now hasn't closed yet, but should in the in the uh, first or second quarter close with MGM Growth Properties. So what we're seeing here, and again, this is healthy for the industry. You see this M&A activity. What that shows you, frankly, Dan, is that the REITs have a cost of capital advantage. They're able to utilize mm -hmm. their low cost of capital to be able to grow their businesses and create a scale. So having those low cost cap of capital advantages and the scale advantages has really is what's led to the performance or really outperformance, I should say, for the REIT sector in general. Now, with all of those companies that are going away, and by the way, most all of those companies I think I mentioned were all REIT to REIT M&A transactions. There are some that are not REIT to REIT M&A deals, like, for example, Cyrus One, which is a data center REIT that we cover. They're getting acquired by a KKR uh, private equity firm. So you're seeing some of those REITs uh, being acquired by private equity. But you're also seeing some new names. For example, in your in your wheelhouse, NetLease, we saw three NetLease companies uh, list in 2021, uh, or actually 2020, I should say. We saw Alpine NetLease uh, go public. They actually spun out of another REIT called uh, CTO Realty. We saw Broadstone NetLease uh, list. They were a very large private REIT. And then we saw NetStreet list uh, based in Texas, Dallas, Texas, which is a very much similar to Realty Income, uh, investment grade focused net lease REIT. And I think I just saw uh, um, in the last couple of days, another net lease REIT that is filed to list. So again, you're seeing some new entrants come into the space. Some of those sectors like cannabis I mentioned earlier, we've seen some new names going into cannabis. Obviously uh, there's there's the uh, a massive growth we're seeing with the, the uh, regulation of cannabis mm -hmm. on a state by state basis. That's created the demand really insatiable demand for cannabis re, uh, cannabis landlords or cannabis REITs. So uh, yeah, we're seeing comp some companies going away, but also some companies coming in. So overall, we're seeing that continued growth and really that capital that's still coming into the space, both from the US, but also from abroad. Uh, we work, we have over 6,000 subscribers now. And many of our subscribers are in Europe, or actually in, in, uh, in South America, really all over the globe. So Again, I think that's really uh, led to uh, uh, the growth of the sector is just the demand for income and really just real estate in general, Dan. I mean, you know, the you know real estate is a core asset class and a lot of wealth in our country has created through real estate ownership. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are some great points. That cost of capital and, and access to capital definitely allows the REITs to compete in a way that your average investor cannot. What also is interesting to me is if you look back to you know Q1 and Q2 of 2020, when things were really hitting the fan, a lot of the investors and brokers decided to really pull back and step on the sidelines. 
And what was fascinating to me is, you know, the REITs, they have this ability to almost insulate them from the typical fear that an investor or even a broker might might uh, experience. I noticed that my REIT clients all stepped up. They were sending out more emails, making more phone calls saying, hey, we're still buying, we're raising money, we've got kegs of dry powder on the sideline, and we want to deploy. And I think that those REITs really stepped in and bought some incredible deals in Q2, Q3, Q4 of 2020. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, there's a lot of powder uh, on the balance sheet. And again, I think there's a lot of that as lessons learned, Dan, going all the way back to, to the Great Recession, which I know you're familiar with and I am too. Frankly, that's the one reason I'm not a developer now, because I didn't have a job in 2008 and 9, and I just started my other job of writing and being a, now I'm a publisher. So, but 2008 and 2009, there's, there's a lot of lessons. And so what we saw really over the last decade or so is a number of these REITs, in fact, most REITs who were around before the Great Recession, they saw what happened. They saw the uh, the balance sheets that were probably not in that great of a shape. So uh, a lot of these CEOs and CFOs uh, began to deleverage these companies and prepare for the next thing, the next if, what, what could happen. And so we didn't, obviously they weren't preparing for a pandemic, but they were preparing for something, perhaps another recession, big recession, maybe a great recession. And so going into the pandemic, a lot of these REITs had some powder and they, you know, they took advantage of that to your point and were opportunistic, went on the offense and started to buy stuff. And again, that's part of that M&A that I mentioned as well as now you had Simon, for example, the big mega mall landlord. They were able to come in here and take Taubman out. And by the way, they got a discount. They, they got a billion dollar discount. Exactly. Shaved a billion dollars off the price. Not a bad deal. And I think Tallman is happy. I mean, obviously they want to make more money, but uh, that worked out well for everyone. And again, that kind of goes back to that scale advantage again. And I think that that's where REITs really operate best. I mean, I was a I was a you know, developer, you know, for 20 years, and and uh, you know, I can never compete with a REIT, you know, in terms of pricing or scale and the efficiency of running the business. And so, you know, I've learned a lot over these last decades. And we interview just like I'm on your show. We interview a lot of CEO. CEOs almost every week, I'll interview a CEO or two. And, uh, you know, we learn a lot, but these guys are really one probably big missing part of this that especially the stock stock investors really um, miss is that when you invest in a company, I don't care if it's a REIT like like Simon or or even a a C corporation like Coca-Cola, part of that part of what that value that you get when you pay it when you pay it by a dollar for that one share. You're, you're actually getting in return something else. And that's part of it is management. You're actually paying salary if, of that management team, a, a fractional part of that salary of that share you invest. So you know, we spend a lot of time with our CEOs and really the C-suite uh, management teams for these REITs. And it's really interesting to see most of them are really, really good. Again, yes. if you compare it, especially when you compare it to me, when I was a developer, <laughs> I thought I was... I thought I was a hot shot, but now I've really been humbled because these uh, these management teams really understand uh, how to create shareholder value. Absolutely, absolutely, it's a really good point. So, listen, Brad, we got to wrap this up. This has been a lot of fun. We got about a minute left. You know, you've been in the industry for a long time. You've done a lot. You do a lot. You're well known and, and well respected. What advice do you have to a young guy like me in the industry? Yeah, I mean, I, and I write about this, Dan, a lot. Just don't chase yield. I mean, we all get tempted. We're all we're all we're all human, you know, and uh, you know just don't chase yield. You're better off just trying to. You know, the biggest lesson for me is the losses, and I think about that almost all the time. 
is avoiding these losses, avoiding these pitfalls. Um, so just focus on high quality companies, but don't go chasing yield. And uh, you want to have repeatable sources of income. You, you know as well as I do, the success for real estate is called the power of compounding. And you've got to own that. You've got to collect those rent checks a long time, let them compound. And eventually you're going to have a big pot of money at the end. But just be slow, uh, be meticulous in your research, and just don't chase yield. That's great. I love it. Great advice. I'm going to actually share that with my kids who are much younger than I am, and they have absolutely no reason to chase yield. They've got all, all the time on their side. So great advice there. Really appreciated having you on the show. This has been a great time with Brad Thomas, the chief of staff of Wide Moat Research and a good friend who's just doing great things. So really appreciate having you on the show today, Brad. Enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Dan. Take care. Fantastic. Well, I'm your host, Dan Lukowitz. This has been another great episode of Dan on Top, and we look forward to seeing you soon.